0: Today, I had the opportunity to reconnect with Rob Wolf, who is an absolutely delightful, pragmatic research biochemist and two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, one of which is one of my favorite books that I recommend on the regular Wired to Eat. Today, we dove into everything related to electrolytes, what got his interest peaked in terms of his own training journey. We spoke about what is wrong with traditional oral rehydration therapies aka Gatorade, what happens with electrolyte losses, some of the common diagnoses and conditions that can make us lose more electrolytes, the role of specific electrolytes, including magnesium, calcium, potassium, and sodium, how to determine if you are creating too much hormetic stress in the body. And by this, I'm specifically speaking to overtraining, over fasting, and then looking at lifestyle balance. We spoke, a quite a great deal about zone two cardio, as well as the value of strength training. I hope you will enjoy this in conversation as much as I did recording it. You know, talk a little bit about your journey. What got you so passionate, interested, vested in electrolyte repletion? And I'm presuming it has a lot to do with a lot of the tra- intense training you were doing.
1: Yeah, you know, it's both humbling. It's a fairly interesting story, but it's also one of Uh, important to remain humble and continue to look for people smarter than yourself. But I've been eating a low carb diet for at least 23 years now and largely settled on that due to, I guess, this, you know, intersection of just poor blood glucose regulation. You know, I am reasonably lean. I donate blood. I'm not iron overloaded. I lift weights. I do cold exposure. Like I do everything I can to try to improve insulin sensitivity and it, it on my insulin LPIR score. I'm very insulin sensitive. When I do fasting insulin, I'm insulin sensitive on all that stuff, but I just feel like garbage, you know, well, I can do one reasonably carby meal here and there, but if I do it serially, like if I have breakfast and then lunch and then dinner, like it's by the second or third meal, like I am just starting to get into this carb roller coaster and it just, it's kind of off to the races. So 23 years ago, I figured out that a lower carb diet was good for my blood sugar regulation. And then this interrelated gut autoimmune issue, like it definitely, I seem to benefit with even reduced fiber intake on that. Like I'm not hundred percent carnivore, but it took me forever to figure out that like this giant raw green salad is crushing me. Like just for me personally, it was a terrible idea. And so there's been all this evolution with things, but I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, have done it for years, and it's a very glycolytic sport, which is kind of at odds with a low carb diet. You know, that glucose, glycogen driven, you know, activity that boxing, kickboxing, CrossFit, 800 meter runs, like that's right in that wheelhouse. And that's what I'm not fueling. You know, low carb diets can top off glycogen, but it takes some time. And although there's some research that, suggests over time, people will adapt into that. It's just always been a challenge. And I tinkered with pre-workout carbs and post-workout carbs and kind of help. But if I ate enough carbs to really move the needle on my physical performance, then I started feeling like garbage because of the blood sugar dysregulation and everything. And I I just kind of What's the line from C-3PO with uh, Star Wars? You know, it's our lot in life to suffer. I was like, okay, I just (laughs) suck. And, you know, this is just what it is. But I always kept poking around looking for stuff. And something that I would search was Brazilian jiu-jitsu ketogenic diet, you know, and just see if people were out there doing it. And what was kind of interesting about that is there were people, not a ton, there was a lot of complaining similar to mine. It's like, oh, I feel really good keto, but... It's hard to run this on, you run that with a jujitsu practice. But I started finding some people that were succeeding. The funny thing is, it was mainly women, which, you know, there's all this like hubbub around, like, oh, women on low carb diets, it's going to destroy their adrenals and their thyroid and they're, you know, they're going to become amenorrheic and, you know, all this stuff. But what was, and I I don't doubt that that happens, but I think that there's a lot of other stuff going on. Primary is, inadequate electrolytes. And then also I think they're protein deficient, you know, a bunch of other stuff, but I started running across some folks that were competing at a super high level in jujitsu were ketogenic female. And I'm like, well, what the heck are they doing? And almost to a person, they were in this group called keto gains. And I started poking around the keto gains group. And these two guys that founded keto gains, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, Really sharp guys, very prickly at times, too. Like they're very direct with people. And I oftentimes think that I have the bedside manner of a porcupine, but they put me to shame <laughs> at, at various points. But they're really smart. And I would argue that they have probably worked with more people, both body recomposition and also high level athletics doing a, a low carb or ketogenic diet than possibly anybody in the world. Like they're certainly there's maybe three to five people that are are similar to them and the volume of people that they've moved through all this stuff. So I started hanging out with them and chatting with them and uh, became friends with all those folks. And I asked them, I'm like, Hey, so I'm struggling with jujitsu and this low carb diet. What do you think I have going on? And they looked at, you know, my protein carbs, fat, and they're like, I think that you need more electrolytes specifically sodium. And for ages I've been in this camp that, sodium is not the driver of cardiovascular disease. Like on that hypertension side, I think it was 2000, 2001 that I really became aware of insulin resistance causing a change in aldosterone, you know, uh, production and aldosterone causing this uh, retention of sodium and that hypertension mainly being a metabolic disease and not a, I ate too much sodium issue. So I had, for All of my life, all of my career, I've I've been in this like, oh, sodium's not the problem. It's, you know, you need a lower carb diet and then, you know, all this stuff will resolve. But so I was not afraid of sodium, but I really wasn't like actively adding sodium to my diet. So like any good person who's written his own New York Times bestselling books and has a science background, I ignored their advice and, you know, went for another year of just struggling and flailing and everything and then they did something crazy. They said, hey, why don't you weigh and measure all of the food you're eating and all the electrolytes you're consuming or you think you're consuming, especially sodium? Go, okay, that's very reasonable. And they wanted me at at least five grams of sodium per day. And when I did all my horse and pony show, I was getting fewer than two grams of sodium wow. per day, and which is why I felt like shit all the time like you know blood sugar was good like i struggled so much with blood sugar for for so much of my life that i think i had kind of assigned all of existence to blood sugar control okay i've got my blood sugar control but there's like going from seated to standing and almost blacking out you know there's having that low gear while while grinding out a workout and all this stuff So they looked at where I was at and they're like, are you going to train today? Like, are you doing jujitsu or anything else? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing some jujitsu later. I'm like, okay, do you have any pickle juice? Yes, I have some pickle juice. Okay, get an eight ounce cup, get about six to seven ounces of pickle juice. Do about half of that 20 minutes before you go to jujitsu. And then the last half, like right before you get on the mat, I did it. And I was like turbocharged. I just had energy for miles it felt like my heart rate at any given workout put was like ten or fifteen beats less per minute. I was like, "What is going on?" And so I went back to them, like, "Hey guys, I think sodium is really important for physical, you know, performance." They're like, "Yeah, you're an idiot. <laughs> we know." And <laughs> and so we, I started really with a fresh set of eyes digging into all this stuff, and I'm like, "Oh, we're an electrochemical battery." everything in our body is driven by sodium potassium pumps, every nerve impulse, every thought, every muscle contraction is only a consequence of sodium potassium gradients. And if the sodium potassium ratio in your body is off, things start to go sideways. There's nothing more tightly regulated in the body than sodium potassium levels, other than maybe pH, like you could, uh, you know, but it's like, we can exist and function with an order of magnitude change in blood glucose levels. But if our electrolytes get off by just a little bit, if our pH gets off by just a little bit, we're dead. We're non-functional first and then we're, we're dead. And so I was just like, Oh my goodness, like this is just, you know, crazy. And then I had been a fan of low carb diets for 23 years. I've written two New York times best-selling books with low carb as a central feature and not a word about sodium in it, because it just wasn't on my radar. And if one goes to a well-trained dietitian who prescribes ketogenic diets for say like epilepsy, that person will make damn sure that the person receiving that, that prescription will get at least five grams of sodium per day as part of their, their regimen, because these people understand the naturesis of fasting, which is low carb diet or fasting. We drop insulin levels, insulin levels drop aldosterone and other hormones that cause sodium retention drop. And we just burn through sodium. We dump a lot of water. Then we start dumping potassium to try to reestablish the sodium potassium ratio. And this is where people can just go down the drain in like absolute, you know, shocking uh, rapid fashion when they're on a, a low carb diet and exercising And I discovered that, wow, even like a small female might need like 10 or 12 grams of sodium per day to be able to function athletically, especially if it's hot, especially if it's humid and high motor output and all this stuff. And so Tyler and Luis just deserve massive props for their understanding of this stuff. They really had this buttoned up and they had understood it for a long time. And my God, the slings and arrows they took over just trying to get people to do drink some pickle juice or try this or try that. You know, it was, it was kind of crazy, but when I had this awakening, I talked to them. I'm like, Hey, clearly this is potentially like 98, 99% of the problems that people report on low carb sleep disturbances, elevated heart rate, HRV changes, thyroid dysregulation. Like all of this could arguably be driven by inadequate sodium intake. And they're like, Yes. OK, so how do we get this out to the masses and convince people to fix it? Well, let's do a downloadable PDF that just tells people, you know, eat olives, eat pickles, drink pickle juice, mix up this keto weight is what we call it initially, which is we would mix it in a half gallon containers. And it was this much sodium, you know, from table salt, some no salt, some magnesium citrate. And then we would do lemon juice and stevia water, shake it up. And we put this up on the interwebs and within six months we had like a half million downloads of it. Like it was jaw dropping. And we, we weren't collecting emails or was no marketing around it. We just wanted people to know, Hey, electrolytes are important, especially if you're on some sort of a low carb diet. And we just were inundated on social media, like people tagging us. They're like, Oh, the keto weight is amazing. This is so awesome. But I've got to say it sucks when I go, when I'm traveling and I go through TSA and I've got three bags of white powder with me, you know, they've, <laughs> they've got all their stuff with them. And so folks were like, Hey, could you do some sort of a convenience thing? You know? And I was like, what, like a, a scooper or a stick back? And they're like, yeah. So we started looking into it. And it, the, the more I looked into it, the better the idea seemed. But when the first flavor we came out with was a uh, citrus and we, we formulated it such that if it failed as an electrolyte product, we could pivot and sell it as like a margarita drink base. And fortunately, the company has done well, and now we kind of market it as both. But that's where all of this came from. Like I had no designs on having an electrolyte company or you know selling people salt or anything. But it was first figuring out what I was doing wrong in in this whole thing. And oh man, it, it's so sad because. I was a decent athlete, you know, even on the low carb thing, but I'm looking back and all these problems. I had like kind of adrenal burnout and different things. It was totally because I didn't have enough sodium, you know, mm. it was, I needed so much more. I could have probably done a little bit more carb cycling and stuff like that too, but the adequate sodium, my sleep is better. My recovery is better. I don't feel totally kind of like sympathetic nervous system blown out and you know, I have 20, I would say 20 of the 23 years, I was ignorant as to the need for additional sodium. The fortunate thing is this topic seems to have really, you know, we're, we're at a point where this is topically relevant. There are some other smart people in the health and fitness space. There's a bodybuilder, power bodybuilder guy, San Efferding who very much advocates for better sodium intake. Uh, James DiNicolantonio, D. uh, a D who wrote the Salt Fix and whatnot. So there's definitely this kind of watershed moment. The USDA food guidelines, they really kind of came back around and they're like, sodium isn't quite the horrible thing that we thought it was, but they still said you need to limit the amount of sodium that you eat. But it, it got a little bit of a, a reprieve, like a stay of execution in the last <laughs> go around with stuff. But I mean, that's kind of my long wandering story on this of where this critical need for better electrolyte management, specifically sodium came from it, it was first my issues. And then when I realized what was where I was failing, I looked at the folks that I'm trying to serve and I was like, oh my God, like 95% of the people I'm working with, like their first three, first five issues that they contend with on kind of lower carb, paleo, keto, carnivore it's sodium inadequacy, you know, for the most part. And once we, it's kind of cool that we started the company with this freemium thing, with this free downloadable guide, which we still have, like if people go to drinkelement.com forward slash homebrew, they can still get it. So even if people are like, oh, we think your electrolytes are expensive. It's like, here's the free version, like go make it yourself, you know? And so it's cool that clearly identified a massive need in this scene, which I would have never dreamt that there was a hole in the electrolyte world. Like when you think about like Gatorade and Powerade and this and that, and the other, I would never dreamt that there was. But when I sat down to formulate this thing with Tyler and Louise, I was unencumbered with any, any, um, I was not in the sodium is dangerous camp, you know? Coming from the payload background, like Lauren Cordain was very much kind of anti-sodium intake, which I, I kind of get why, but I think it was also super misguided, particularly within athletic populations. But I just dug into the literature and found things like the American Council of Sports Medicine, their guidelines for athletes in hot, humid environments is seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. Like seven to ten gram, not milligram, like thousand, you know, seven to ten thousand milligrams of sodium per day. A high temperature, high humidity, high motor output. And then if you, and those are in people who are eating, you know, 50 to 60% of their calories from carbs. And so they actually have enough insulin elevation to probably cause some better sodium retention under those circumstances. What does a low carb person need? Well, they might need double that, you know, but again, that's kind of a long meandering story, but I think that we've had the success that we've experienced because we didn't launch with a product first. It was really just, we found a problem. We really tried to fix the problem. And then the people who were fixing the problem told us, Hey, this is great. We're solving this, but we would really like a convenient way to deal with this. And then we ended up you know, creating a, a stick pack product to, around addressing that need.
0: Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? in the right doses all in a highly absorbable liquid form all you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed don't worry it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep i've been using this product over the last several months i've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics which i like to share on social media with my followers and if you want a simple way to improve your sleep Head over to www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. slash Cynthia. That's dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Well, and I'm so glad that you did. And and I love the journey of the end of one that expands into, you know, diving down this rabbit hole, helping to dis- dispel a lot of incorrect dogma, you know, as a Western medicine, trained nurse practitioner, ER medicine, cardiology, better believe I knew all about electrolyte repletion, which really evolved into my business because I would talk about the fact that yes, you know, if you defecate, if you urinate, if you sweat, if you breathe, you are losing electrolytes just by that virtue, you add in physical activity, humidity. I live in a super humid part of the country and thinking about my athletic boys really, really important. Like I now have my 14 year old on board. My 16 year old thinks I'm crazy and that he doesn't need electrolytes, but he plays lacrosse and football and this summer he's going to get, I was explaining to him, we're going to find a workable solution. We're going to find something that appeals to you and you're going to use it. So when we're talking about
1: one, like calf cramp that nearly shears his tibia, tib fib in half, and then it's like, okay, you'll try this now. You yes. know, that'll yeah. probably be the quickest
0: way to solve that. Well, and it's interesting. I encouraged my 14 year old. I kept explaining to him about sodium, potassium, magnesium and chloride. And I said, not to mention other electrolytes. And I kept explaining, I said, if you swim hard for three hours, what do you think happens? And so I, I encouraged him. I said, you've got all these different flavors, find a flavor that you like. Of course, to antagonize my husband, he picks the one that my husband likes best, but that's a whole separate story. Right. And I said to him, tell me how your practice goes when you're well hydrated versus not. And he actually came home and said, I drink four of these a day now. So he drinks four packets on days. He trains, he sleeps better. He has better performance. I mean, he's a butterflyer, so he needs a lot Mm -hmm. of power to get through those workouts, which are pretty brutal. And for him, he was humbly surprised. And for me, I feel like it's a mom win because what happens at most sports practices, they have Gatorade they have Powerade. And maybe the thing to touch on next is what is it about sugar and the oral rehydration therapies that are kind of conventionally available? What actually happens? Because we know that sugar can actually facilitate the uptake of sodium. So I understand that piece Mm -hmm. why it's probably added, but I think for a lot of people, they don't recognize that the high fructose corn syrup and artificial colors and all these other components of these you know, pre made oral rehydration therapies, or maybe I'll put an air quote as a therapy because it may not actually be particularly helpful when you look at the macros. How this can be beneficial or non beneficial, and how your product, which I fervently stand behind and love, how your product is very different than, should I even say that Gatorade? I can say Gatorade. It's yeah, my podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, the More conventional options that are out there.
1: Yeah. So here's an interesting aside. We had a, a good friend who went to uh, the Gatorade Museum, you know, University of Florida and everything. I I think their daughter was starting school there. And they're like, oh, we'll go buy this Gatorade Museum. And they had one of the first containers of Gatorade ever that hit commercial production. And it had one gram of sodium per serving just like element does and it had the sugar also but in the beginning in the paleolithic of you know oral rehydration products gatorade was pretty damn good and it, when you think about for the time it was very well thought out and you know right prior to gatorade itself the thought around hydration was generally uh, chew on salt tablets and then sip water per your thirst And we never had people who like at military boot camps and football double days and whatnot, we shifted into this thing where people should drink eight ounce glasses of water a day and pee clear and all this type of stuff. And we started having people get sick and die from hyponatremia, you know, from so diluting their, their sodium and you're an ER practitioner. And so you, you know, how dire that situation is. That never happened like 1940s, 1950s. Like they would tell people to chew on salt tablets and then sip on water up to their thirst satiety mechanisms. That is so much better informed than where we are really now. So I know the question was specifically around like kind of the glucose and all that, but we went from salt tablets, drink to satiety. Then Gatorade was kind of this game changer where they had a significant amount of sodium. They had some glucose glucose does facilitate the uptake of sodium, but you could almost look at it the opposite way. So these transporters, the SGLT transporters, are sodium glucose transporters. You could almost make the case that the sodium facilitates the uptake of glucose, not the other way around. And really that's, at the end of the day, the way mechanistically like the biophysics, this is actually the way that this stuff works. And in a situation like cholera or something, where somebody's going to die because they're just blowing through both body water and electrolytes, and you know if somebody's vomiting, like potentially you know blowing off massive amounts of acid, so that they're becoming uh, alkalotic and whatnot, that can be a lifesaver. And and you need something where you can stomp on the gas pedal with it and really get this rapid response. But there's a couple of different problems with that. One is that there's a claim that you can't absorb electrolytes without glucose, which is patently true um, or untrue. We can actively transport that stuff and it costs us a, a little bit of energy to do that. We can use amino acids, charged amino acids in the same way that the glucose can actively transport that stuff. Uh, we can use ketone bodies or butyrate. So like if you're eating some fiber or you're in a ketogenic state, those things can help absorb that. And so there's a couple of different mechanisms whereby we can bring these items into the body. A piece of the story is that I think by and large, people are just consuming too much sugar, particularly when we look at youth sports. Like we've got these six-year-old kids that are playing soccer and they're barely doing much of anything. Like they spin their arms and do a little bit of warm up, and then they chase a ball that's nearly as tall as them. And they do 20 minutes of it. And it's like, okay, kids, here's some cupcakes, here's some cookies. And then here's a big bottle of Gatorade. And it's like, they maybe burned 15 grams of glucose during that whole thing. And now we're sticking a hundred grams of glucose back into their body to like, you know, top them off. So that's kind of a problem. And then the reason, really specifically, the reason why we didn't use glucose for Element is that, are you a large male, a small female? Or are you doing a super hard physical activity? Or are you, you doing like a zone two cardio session where you're only trying to mobilize fat? And so most of the products that, I mean, all of the products effectively exist. They just have like this kind of one size fits all glucose dose. And what I find is that it fits almost nobody's needs perfectly and it imperfectly matches 99% of, you know, folks needs. So what we recommend to people is, so an example for myself, like I might have a container, this is a larger container. I might do two stick packs of element in this. And I'll take that to jujitsu with me and I'll just sip on maybe half of this, which would be about a half a liter through my technique portion, which is a little demanding, but it's not super demanding. Then when we get ready to do open rolling, basically sparring with each other, really hard grappling, I'll look around the room. And if it's a bunch of beat up old has-beens like me, I may not even add any glucose to the mix. But if it's a bunch of like 20 year old, no necked wrestlers, I will take glucose tablets and throw those down. So I don't even add glucose to my drink because I want to control how much glucose I get separate from my electrolytes. If I throw the glucose in here, then I'm stuck with whatever is in there. So I actually dose the glucose separate from my electrolytes so I can really control that stuff. And not everybody needs to do that. Not everybody does do that. But what I find is folks' needs for electrolytes are more consistent than their needs for glucose happen to be. So I kind of toggle the glucose switch separate from the electrolyte switch, and then that way people can really fine-tune this stuff. And again, if we just had this one size fits all product. Like there are a lot of people that like doing intermittent fasting and they, and they'll do some sauna. And if you do intermittent fasting and sauna and you're not doing electrolyte repletion, then you're just like, you're writing yourself a prescription for, I desperately want head trauma, you know, like uh, Peter Atia posted where he was fasting And he did a sauna and like, he split his head open and he's like this decorated surgeon and physician. And one of the smartest people on the planet. And I was, and I pinged him a text. I'm like, Peter, really like you're fasted low carb and you're in a sauna. And you didn't think you might fucking pass out. And he's like, yeah, I know it's kind of an idiot, but so, it, you know, in this way, the, it, when we separate the glucose from the electrolytes, then uh, people can really easily customize all that stuff. So again, I know that that was a super long, family answer, but that's kind of the background on all that stuff. And there are absolutely reasons to add glucose or other things to facilitate that oral rehydration therapy. But, uh, you know, funny enough, Liquid IV, which is one of the more uh, the other popular brands, they're coming out with a sugar free version, even though they've hung their whole business on like, you don't absorb electrolytes without glucose. That's a lie. And we've been mentioning it. You, that is not true. There may absolutely be reasons why you want glucose, but we've been arguing to maybe decouple those two things and be able to, to toggle them separately. So their next product that they're coming out with is a, a sugar-free version, which I, I think is kind of validating of what we've been up to for a long time.
0: Well, and I think it's really interesting how personalized, you know, for everyone that's listening, obviously I use electrolytes all day long. I'm a huge proponent of them. I'll share something personal. I had surgery a couple of weeks ago, orthopedic surgery, And I knew that my, you know, all the things I track my aura ring, my, my HRV, all these things. I knew these metrics would be off. I took my CGM off because I knew for the first week after surgery, I was sleeping well. What's been interesting. And I was saying to my husband is that my HRV has been so off, even though my Mm. metrics for deep and REM sleep are actually not all that bad. I'm getting plenty of sleep. And I actually said to my husband the other night, I wonder if I need more salt. And so I started, you know, I was doing my my element, I was using a product that I have, I was adding quintin ampules, so I was increasing you know, mm. in sodium and I found three ampules of quintin on top of my normal dose, then my HRV came back down. Then my deep sleep started to increase. And so that personalization like this is where I think these metrics of having bio-tracking devices is really helpful. I just find that having a CGM or even a glucometer. And I know you're a proponent of those. And then having an aura allows me to really fine tune what I need to the point. Sometimes that I I was like, I have to back off because you can get obsessive, but I think it also speaks to what you were saying that there are times when you need that glucose, when you're grappling with these young gentlemen, but if you're, you know, with, you know, a group of your peers, you feel like you can just drink your element and that, you know, meets your needs. So let's talk a little bit about what are some of the common ways that people will lose electrolytes other than just exercise, because I really lean back on my cardiology background. And I think about one disorder in particular pots or dysautonomia, mm-hmm. which it was such a problem when we had patients that came in and got diagnosis, we would refer them to the pots experts because, you know, we were essentially left to just give them drugs that would keep their blood pressure up. Cause one of the things they dealt with was a significant degree of orthostasis and orthostatic hypotension, which means when they would go from a seated or standing position, they would have significant fluctuations in their blood pressure. But what are some of the other things I think about medications? I think about, you know, POTS or dysautonomia, which is unfortunately becoming much more common. Think about breastfeeding women. What are some of the other things that you have found that electrolytes have been super helpful for
1: Man, it, just as like a broad background, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that HRV and I too get a little almost prickly about devices because I kind of feel like there's about a two or three month period of insight that we get from some, something like an aura ring and aura people are going to hate me now, but I feel like it kind of hits a brick wall at some point. You know, like I was finding that I would go to bed and I'd, I'd read a book and I had my blue blockers on and I'd fall asleep and everything, but The aura ring would ding me and it would say that I had uh, sleep latency issues, you know, because it was interpreting my reading as this inability to fall asleep. So then I would take the ring off and until I was done reading the book and then I would put it on and then I would get my good sleep score. I'm like, God, screw this, you know, I'm over it, (laughs) but because it, it starts, you start doing all kinds of weird stuff just for like the carrot of a better score. But all that said man, it's been such an eye-opener how dramatically improved HRV is when people are on point with electrolytes. And it's this thing that just happens immediately. A cool element of fixing electrolyte status is if you're feeling kind of off, you're just feeling for so long, I can't tell you how many afternoon espressos I drank and what I needed was to eat a pickle. (laughs) <laughs> I needed to eat a pickle, drink pickle juice, or do eat, eat fifteen olives. Like I didn't need, a, you know, a uh, an espresso boost. I needed some sodium. It was really the big deal. But so the things that definitely affected heat and humidity are huge factors, and just ambiently being in a warmer environment really changes things. We spent two years living in Texas. And now we live in Montana, and my electrolyte consumption dropped by like a third just out of the gate, just arriving here because it's much cooler. It's much less humid. I don't sweat as much, and I'm still doing jiu-jitsu. I'm still working out, but it was just survival in Texas. Like you go outside and get hit with like that wall of, you know, southern uh, humidity, and you're like, yeah, it's just like an oven and it never really ends. So that's a big deal. But ironically, also cold and elevation are really big factors that can sneak up on people. When it's cold, we tend to get a dysregulation in our thirst mechanism. So we tend to not be as thirsty. And I think that that's probably because our body doesn't want us to consume liquids, which are themselves cold. And so there's kind of a feed forward mechanism there, but both uh Cold weather and elevation can dramatically increase our electrolyte needs. Uh, exercise can double or triple. Or, you know, like if I need four to five grams of sodium, if I'm I'm relatively sedentary, say like I'm, I'm writing a bunch of papers and stuff like that. If I'm active and it's a little warm and um, I'm doing some jujitsu, so I'm wearing a gi. I may need 10 or 12 grams of sodium. So I, I've got a doubling, nearly a tripling of uh, sodium need uh, kind of controversial, but there are some good papers that support this, but both the severe elements of COVID and long COVID you see a uh, chronically decreased sodium levels in people. And just very anecdotally we've had folks, and again, it doesn't have to be element. There's nothing magical about that other than it tastes good and it's, Convenient, But if we just get people to address sodium needs, like I feel way better, like a bunch of that long COVID issue goes away, even in the acute phase where people are like maybe teetering on the brink of, uh, you know, things getting uh, more severe, adequate sodium intake seemed to be a real game changer for people. So those are definitely big ones. Really early on, we started getting tagged uh, by the folks in the POTS community. Because one person did Element and and they're very aware of the need for higher sodium intake. It's kind of hard to find a product like all of them have sugar and none of them really have adequate levels of sodium and whatnot. And so we started getting tagged on this stuff and then we did a whole month last year of POTS Awareness. And so we've had a really awesome you know, synergistic relationship there. And then another one is breastfeeding, ironically. And not, so breastfeeding in general, but also um, within this like pumping, exclusive pumping kind of communities, like everybody gets kind of fractionated into their different camps, but for a variety of reasons, there are moms that want to make sure that their kids get the breast milk, but either they have latching issues or work, you know, whatever, but, the exclusively pumping moms are in this like pressure cooker because they have to perform. Like there's all this stress, all this scrutiny and everything. And like my, my wife, she exclusively pumped on our oldest daughter for 13 months. And before we started, you know, incorporating some other stuff, like she was just at her wit's end by then. And uh, the electrolyte story was not on our radar at all. But we started getting it tagged again on social media where these exclusively breast pumping moms would show the little, you know, the little clear, you know, volumetric uh, cylinders. And it's like yesterday I pumped this much and it was like just a paltry little amount. And it's like, I took this and they would show a picture of an element stick. It's like I took two of these and then they would have like six full bottles of breast milk the next day. And I was like, wow. Okay. And then I dug into the physiology of breast milk production. And it's not just, Fluid volume. If you just drink water, it doesn't necessarily mean that you increase breast milk production because it's an osmotic gradient. You need sodium as a driver of that osmotic gradient to pull the casein, the proteins, the lipids, the whole ball of wax is driven in an osmotic gradient that it is driven by sodium. And then you look at cortisol release, which is antagonized by sodium, and t- we tend to suppress cortisol release with adequate sodium. And cortisol is one of these major antagonists of breast milk production, improving sleep enhances. So there was like five or six different mechanisms where I was like, Oh, this makes sense that, you know, adequate electrolytes are really going to benefit there. So the breastfeeding mom is a biggie, the pots, athletic activities, heat, humidity, elevation, you know different temperature scenarios those are all really big situations where we see increased electrolyte need for sure
0: well it's really interesting because i was one of those moms i worked part time as an np but i rounded in the hospital and so i would more often than not i would pump when i could have eaten and so i remember you know you were if you were a mom who breastfed and worked and had to pump in between all the things I always remember that days I rounded in the hospital, I could never get the same volume of breast milk production on the days I was off because on the days I I was off, I could drink water or whatever I was drinking Mm -hmm. and I could urinate at will. And when you're in the hospital, you want to be a camel. You don't want to have to go to the bathroom, especially when you're rounding on patients. So that makes complete sense. I think that's really interesting. You know, one thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is... You know, when we're talking about electrolytes, we've talked a little bit about sodium and I think people recognize these names, but are at least kind of cohesively talking about what are some of the major roles of like magnesium, because magnesium is the one that in cardiology, everyone always thought about potassium, but never magnesium. And especially with my electrophysiology background, all the arrhythmia patients I took care of, I used to always say, has anyone checked a magnesium? And it can't just be any old magnesium. It needs to be serum, you know, RBC mag. Because then we could properly replete, and that oftentimes would fix just about any problem we were experiencing. So, for the benefits of listeners who may not be as familiarized with what some of these particular electrolytes do in the body, kind of highbrow, just because I think it's important. They hear me harp about magnesium, not as much about potassium, but certainly about sodium.
1: Yeah. So, broadly, we have, I guess, the main electrolytes that are going to be active in the human body sodium potassium, magnesium, and calcium in kind of the positive charged metal ion world. And in the anion world, uh, we have chloride, what, phosphates and bicarbonates would, I guess, kind of technically plug into that. I'm probably forgetting one or two somewhere in there, but those are the biggies and they, they cover most of what we have going on. Calcium is a player in this, but it's a player in in muscle contraction, but it's kind of secondary or tertiary. And the dynamic flux happens on a much slower timeline. So it's a, it's, again, the thing that really changes most dynamically, I would argue, is probably sodium is probably the biggest dynamic element. And then potassium secondary to that, and then magnesium tertiary to that. Uh, sodium and potassium end up getting uh, partitioned in our cells and extracellular uh, fluid spaces in such a way that it's almost like water behind a dam. And if you think about water behind a dam, when we open up a gate and we've got a turbine as it, as the water goes through, that potential energy, the gradient of high water here going to low water there, there's the ability to... Uh, attach that to doing work. We do similar things with gradients of ions in our body. So we'll have a lot relatively of sodium outside of cells, a lot relatively of potassium inside cells. And when those two equilibrate, we're able to attach energy production out of that. And everything we do, all the ATP synthesis, nerve contractions, like everything is driven by that. Uh, so those are also why if we get a little bit off on sodium or potassium levels, we start feeling like garbage rather quickly because uh, fine motor skills, eyesight, acuity, hearing all those things start going sideways pretty quickly. It's, I, I had not really thought about this, but even scenarios like when we start having hearing difficulty and vision loss at very altered uh, sodium potassium levels. It's literally because the nerves aren't functioning properly anymore, you know? So it's it's not just uh, fine motor skills and whatnot. It's actually like other sensory input. And then we have magnesium, which plays so many different roles in the body. And it is technically an electrolyte, but it ends up being involved in ATP synthesis. It plays a role of kind of catalyzing the conversion of ATP into energy It's involved again in muscle contraction, relaxation, and it's kind of more synergistic with calcium in that regard. What's kind of interesting to me in this whole big story is we definitely want adequate levels of magnesium. We tend not to get them. We want adequate levels of potassium. We tend not to get them. Most people overconsume sodium relative to potassium and magnesium, but it's because they eat a ton of processed food whenever somebody shifts from a processed food diet to a minimally processed diet, they automatically increase their potassium, magnesium and decrease their sodium, which ironically also tends to increase their sodium needs in that whole story. But if we get adequate sodium, our kidneys do a pretty good job of, okay, we'll keep this much potassium, get rid of that much. We'll keep this much magnesium, get rid of that much. But if we are underpowered in our sodium intake, it's actually difficult for the kidneys to sort all of that out and keep us at a stable state. So I do kind of put the sodium intake as kind of primary in this story, because if we get that appropriate, then everything else has a tendency to sort itself out rather well. But if we are inadequate in sodium, the kidneys are kind of stuck with, okay, well, do I jettison a bunch of potassium to try to re-equilibrate the sodium potassium ratio? Do I jettison a bunch of potassium and magnesium to try to re-equilibrate these things? So ideally we eat a minimally processed whole food diet that we supplement adequate sodium. And by supplement, I mean, salt shaker, eating salty foods like uh, sardines and olives and anchovies and all that type of stuff. And then things really click. Like we're kind of getting into a slipstream there where our physiology is working really well. And we're doing it in a way that's pretty easy to implement on like a lifestyle front.
0: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification. doctoranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Today's podcast is sponsored by Nutrisense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, I think it's just important for people to understand that there is more to electrolytes than I think a lot of the women that I work with think about electrolytes purely from the perspective of I know when I take certain forms of magnesium, it helps me sleep. I know when I take certain forms mm-hmm. of magnesium, it helps me go to the bathroom. And that's one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to connect with you so that we could provide a broader context. Now, one thing you kind of alluded to towards the beginning of our conversation was this kind of overtraining syndrome, overfasting, over, you know, restricting macros and I would imagine in your community and probably over the past 23 years, you've seen this happen both in men and women. And so where do you think that stems from? Because I'm starting to see some of this because of the environment that I'm in and, and working with a lot of women that if a little bit of hormesis is good, more has to be better. It's kind of the the methodology they'll go through, like restrict more carbs, eat less food, you know, over fast. What are some of the ways that you, when you're working with people or you're lecturing on these topics, you try to, try to kind of bolster greater awareness of some of the strategies that we're going a little bit overboard. We're overtraining, we're, you know, over restricting in a way that's not beneficial. I always say that a little bit of hormesis is good. Too much is not good.
1: Yeah, I did. My first article that was published on intermittent fasting in 2005, and it went out mainly to a CrossFit related scene, you know, CrossFit related uh, community by 2006, I desperately regretted releasing this thing (laughs) because these CrossFitters, God bless them, but like they're yes from like an ancestral health perspective we are an active species yes we should be out doing things and and moving but if somebody is doing crossfit on anything like a kind of consistent basis your allostatic load like your total stress load you are right at the max like you are you have stomped the accelerator through the bottom of the the car, and you're just hammering, and that's okay. Like if you're really into CrossFit or you know whatever, um, that's fine. But then people will see things like, "Oh, I did keto and I lost a hundred pounds," and they're like, "Well, shoot, I just want to lose five pounds." So clearly. Losing five pounds is easy compared to 100, which isn't necessarily true, as you and I both know. (laughs) Like, you know, once you get lean, it it may actually be harder to lose that last spot. But uh, I'll go keto. Oh, and this intermittent fasting thing is great. And uh, I need autophagy because if we have autophagy, then I won't get cancer and I'll never get neurodegenerative disease. And so you end up with folks who do CrossFit twice a day, six days a week on their day off. They do hot yoga with a a 20 mile ruck march with a 40 pound vest and they eat five grams of carbs a month. Um, They intermittent fast 22 hours a day and they're like, I don't know what happened, but my hair all fell out and I haven't had a libido in 18 months and my performance has been completely retrograde. And it's like, well, you took all of these different things, all of them that that can be good at, at one level and you just layered them on top and they're not additive, they're multiplicative, you know, and uh, right at the beginning of COVID I did a talk that unfortunately didn't get the circulation. I, I would have hoped it it would, but it's called longevity or are we trying too hard? And it, it just, um, you can link to it if you want. I just, one of the talks I'm the most proud of because fasting, and whatnot, I am as big a fan of fasting and ketogenic diets and whatnot as anybody in the world. But, you know, so this thing will come up around the Element. People will say, Does Element break a fast? And I'm like, Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm fasting for autophagy. And I'm like, Well, you get autophagy drinking coffee, you get autophagy lifting weights, you get autophagy going out and getting a tan. Um, You'll get enhanced autophagy doing a fasting mimicking diet, which is only, you know, doing five to 700 calories a day. So doing this thing that is sugar and calorie free is absolutely not going to break your fast. And does that even matter in the big scheme of things? And is all of this work with autophagy really at the end of the day, all that good for you? Because we have things like the Hayflick limit and the number of cell replication cycles we could have. And just jamming the accelerator on, on autophagy means that we may be burning through all of our stem cells. Like Something that nobody in this like pro-autophagy scene talks about is that animals that are really aggressively fasted die extremely young, and they die from total systemic organ failure that happens all at once because they ran out of stem cells. And I haven't seen one goddamn person like talking about this stuff, you know? And, and so, yeah, people that are really conscientiously trying to do things to better themselves and to be in a good situation to age well and whatnot. And I think they've just kind of lost their minds, like do some exercising, do, you know, maybe once a month, do that 48 hour fast, if you want to, but what my perspective, once people are lean and pretty metabolically healthy, if your question is, should I fast an extra day a week or should you add an extra day a week of resistance training? lift the weights, get the tan. Go do the meditation retreat, like a, a go join a, a poker group or something so you've got better interactions, you know, and better human contact. Like this work around fasting is so, in my opinion, so speculative because what all of it compares, is sick animals overfed in a lab environment versus animals underfed in a lab environment. It is not comparing a phenotypic, super healthy, super athletic individual with the the fasting. So the question shouldn't be, will fasting improve your life versus overeating and being sedentary? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, if you eat less of terrible food, then it's probably going to be a benefit. The real question in my mind, the comparison needs to be, are you eating a species appropriate diet, going to sleeping and and living in a species appropriate way, doing some cardio, doing some strength training? That is our control group. Now let's compare that to the intermittent fasting group and tell me that that is going to like double the lifespan of that group. I think it's garbage. I think that you're going to see things go completely the opposite direction. So I think like fasting, intermittent fasting can be an amazing adjunctive tool for just basic calorie restriction. Like I such a powerful tool. Some people that is like the thing that they finally get control of their calorie intake and they find that it's easier to do that. But man, when you've got people that are burning the candle at both ends and running a gun in real hard with their physical activity, and then they throw carb restriction, calorie restriction, timing restriction on top of all that stuff too. I think that they're really asking for a a lot of problems. And I I think that the long-term we're going to see not awesome consequences come out of all that stuff.
0: Well, I think you bring up some really good points because what it ultimately comes down to is we have to have some degree of balance. I always say balance is elusive, but when you're going to extremes, whether it's dietary extremes, exercise extremes, fasting extremes, that's, you know, this overload of these stressors on the body, which we know can weaken us. You know, they're not contributing to making us stronger as individuals. Now you alluded to some of the things that you think are especially important in in terms of you know, species specific nutrition, species specific strength training. What are some of the other things that you think are really important? Are you a fan of zone two cardio? Is that something that you talk much about? I know the answer is yes, but maybe for the benefit of listeners explaining what makes zone two cardio actually unique and purposeful.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's uh, here's the, a-, a thing I do think it's super important. And it's something that I had underappreciated for a, a good chunk of my career What's interesting to me is just stomping around the world. It's kind of hard to stay specifically in that zone two level. You know, if you're hiking, like it's very challenging. Like if there's much of an uphill gradient, you're going too hard if it's flat or a downhill thing, then your heart rate isn't actually high enough. And so it's actually, this is something that I'm intrigued about. It's like, if it's so damn important and we get so much benefit from it, it's like, what the hell were we doing that we could stay consistently in there? Or maybe there's a little bit more to the story that we could be kind of intermittently in and out of that, but it really enhances mitochondrial biogenesis because we tend to be uh, uh, primarily burning fat is the, preferred fuel source in that scenario. Some very smart athletes like the uh, famous Kenyan runners will do. So I was just beating up on fasting. Now here's an example. We're all singing its praise it. These folks will do fasted zone two cardio, but their diet overall is about 70% carbohydrate. So a high carbohydrate diet to accommodate the high intensity activity that they do but they will do a morning low and for them, relatively low intensity. Like I would die trying to run as fast (laughs) as they do with zone two. Like I would literally keel over and die almost immediately. But that training is almost, it's basically a fat adapted training block that they do because they're fasted. So their liver glycogen is comparatively low and the intensity is, is low enough that they're primarily using fat as a fuel source. And so you get uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, you get angiogenesis. So you get the growth of blood vessels. You get that in the heart, in the lungs, in the muscles, in the brain, we get BDNF release brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is huge for brain health, memory, neurological health. And just as an aside with that too, for BDNF to be functional in our brain, we have to have ketone bodies present for it to function. And it doesn't mean that you have to be specifically on a ketogenic diet, but you can't be so metabolically broken that you're incapable of producing ketone bonds, in, in which case you, you don't get that effect. So stress relief, uh, you know, the literature on strength training and longevity is not nearly as good or as compelling as cardio and longevity. Like cardio really does seem to confer some Legit longevity benefits, but I would say also that cardio has been kind of more the, the darling of exercise physiologists, and a little easier to to quantify and look at. I do think that a modicum of strength training just really enhances the quality of life that people can have. You know, uh, primary determinant of staying out of a rest home is just being able to go from seated to standing, and you know, uh, have the strength to and power to prevent yourself from tripping and falling, or if you do trip and fall to not suffer a catastrophic injury, like a, a hip fracture, you know, or major fracture. So I do think that that's important, but the, the zone two stuff is fascinating to me and and it's uh, accessible in that it, it's pretty pleasant. Like if you can just get people doing it, they can watch a TV show while they're walking on the treadmill or, you know, listen to a podcast. You can do it indoors. Although I think doing it outdoors and, you know, getting light on your person and everything is all really valuable, but people will immediately feel better, They're not super sore from doing it. They tend to have a, a, you know, bump their cognition and their their affect and everything. So it seems to lend itself well to people habituating to it and continuing to do it.
0: I have to agree. It's funny. My integrative medicine doc is always on my case about zone two training. And so I figured out exactly how fast I have to walk. If it's raining, I walk on my treadmill, but otherwise I'm outside. I know exactly how fast I have to walk at what pace to get in that sweet spot where I'm not like over pushing myself, but I'm not taking a leisurely walk. And so I can usually get that in. Right. One thing that I think is important, and this will be our, our last kind of topic is you know, when we're talking about strength training. I think because of where I am life stage wise, I think a lot about sarcopenia. I think a lot about mm-hmm. how where insulin resistance actually starts in our muscles. And so when I'm talking to individuals and especially on the podcast, I always like to have this reiteration of how critically important strength training is. Like for people out there, whether they're women that are doing chronic cardio or they're people that are just overtraining, like really understanding that muscles are super important in terms of longevity. You mentioned, you know, being in the hospital or being in a position where you can go from getting off the commode or getting out of bed. How many 50 year olds I saw over the years when I was doing rounds who couldn't get out of bed by themselves because their muscles had atrophied so much in their legs that they had lost the ability or the strength to be able to do that. And so just want to kind of dovetail this last comment is, you know, in your estimation, what is the minimum amount of strength training that you like to see, or do you advocate for to be able to maintain and continue to build muscle as opposed to lose it. Because I I think for a lot of women, when they get into middle age and they're getting closer to menopause, the hormones, you know, our sex hormones are kind of working against Mm -hmm. us unless it's being replaced. And so, you know, that and the loss of some insulin sensitivity can make it a little bit more challenging, but certainly something I think everyone needs to be working towards.
1: It seems like at least two days per week is kind of a program minimum. I mean, if folks can only fit in one day a week, This is almost a more is better thing, but I'm not also saying that people need to spend two hours a day, six days a week in the gym. Um, A a real inspiration of mine is this guy, Arthur Devaney. Uh, He's a retired economics professor and just a hell of a a physical specimen. And he's been in and around this ancestral health scene since the, before the nineties, like he had a kind of a manifesto that he he wrote called evolutionary fitness back in the, the mid nineties. And that's when I first found him and have followed his work ever since then. And he would do these really brief, but fairly intense workouts where say like he, you know, the lap pull-down machine, he would go over to lap pull-down machine and he would put a, a light weight on there and do it slow and controlled for about 15 reps. Just get a little bit of heat, a little bit of burning going And then he would pop the weight up and he would do it a little bit faster for about eight reps, you know, a little bit more explosive. And then he's getting a sense of kind of where he's at. He's kind of warmed up and then he'll put a pretty heavy load on there for him. And he might get like four to six reps. And the last one is like, that was it. Like he's done. And then he might back it off a little bit and do one more set of maybe like six or 10 reps really get a little bit of lactic acid going, get a little bit of a burn. And then he's done on that. And then he might do exactly the same thing with a press, you know, maybe a vertical. So we've got vertical pull, vertical press, horizontal pull, push, horizontal press. And then with our legs, we've got lunging, squatting and kind of hinging or deadlifting. So he would do a vertical pull and then a vertical press. And then he would do a leg movement and then he was out. And he would do that same thing, about 15 reps slow, 15, 20 reps, and then about eight to 10 reps kind of heavy. And then maybe between three and five reps, like really kind of getting after it. And then he was done with that movement, that whole thing. He would do a little bit of balance to to warm up and some mobility work and everything, but his whole workout was less than 15 minutes. Wow. And it would leave his heart elevated And I mean, he, uh, at 68 years old, 70 years old, he's in his mid eighties now, and he's still just a hell of a physical specimen. But I remember the stats on him when he was in his early seventies, six foot two, 210 pounds, 8% body fat, and just jacked. And this was his workout. And every once in a while he would do a little bit of heavier stuff, but it was never like an hour. It was just super abbreviated workouts, you know, and that's all you need. Like you the people need to train a muscle about to failure, like where you can't really get another rep and it, it's pretty hard. And you need to hit that maybe once a week in the, the primary lifts and everything. And then to be generally physically active beyond that. So what we're talking about there and I know that it can take time to get to the gym and get home from the gym. And so like your 15 or 20 minute workout and then there's maybe some warm-up on And cool down on the backside of that. So, your 15 minute workout really ends up maybe being an hour and a half because you got to go to the gym, come home, and all that. That's why I think people should park their cars outside and have a home gym. And even if it's something where you and your neighbors get together and you buy what's a cheap gym membership is maybe like 50 bucks a month. What if you and your neighbor pool? six months worth of 50 bucks a month, you know, you get a thousand dollars and you buy a thousand dollars worth of like dumbbells and some exercise bands and a pull-up bar or something. You just work out at home. Then you don't even have to travel or whatever, you know, but I think two, maybe three days a week of like a full body, you know, and again, like horizontal pull, horizontal press, and then some sort of squatting leg pressing Uh, lunging, um, deadlifting type movement. And if you don't know how to do those, there's innumerable how-to videos online. You can get coaching that ranges from super inexpensive to ridiculously expensive, you know, either live or virtual. There are people all around the world that will just shoot video of you and you can put it on like your FaceTime or a Zoom like what we're doing and they can say, no, butt back, chest forward, you know, and and you can get outstanding uh, remote coaching. So, I think two or three days a week, kind of a minimum is, and God, the return on investment with that is just staggering. So here's kind of a, a cool stat. A strength trained 90 year old can have better physical capacity than a sedentary 50 year old. Like that's Incredible. like, it's literally getting double your life. So everybody's all focused on like, oh, I'm going to live to be 150 years old and double my lifetime and all that stuff. I don't think any of that's going to happen anytime soon. They might crack some code somewhere. I don't think intermittent fasting is going to do that. I don't think any of the stuff that we have before us is going to do that. But you know, what will effectively double your life is having a zone two cardio base and two or three days a week of strength training with a little bit of mobility work, because you will go into old age, an absolute ass kicker. Like you won't be crippled by a fall. If you get it, a, a, a pulmonary virus, You've got the when your immune system ramps itself up, where it gets protein from to build antibodies is from our muscle mass. And so, when you've got that muscle mass repository, that is where your immune system pulls all this stuff together to say nothing of your better cardiovascular fitness and you have better circulation and your immune system is better tuned and you have, you know, all the right things are happening. So, it is such a nominal investment. And again, like, If you like being in the gym, go for it. Like go hang out in the gym a bunch. Like, that's awesome. But if you don't really like it, like I'll oftentimes hear people say, well, I do yoga or I do gardening and and that's my thing. And I'm like, I get it. And that's great. And it's, it's awesome. But the thing is, is that our body gets really good at adapting to what we're doing. And if we were to graph physical decline Once your body gets used to that yoga program, unless you are really craftily figuring out ways of additionally loading your body, your body is declining. It is adapted to that. Now it's declining. This is the amazing thing of progressive physical overload that can be afforded by barbells and dumbbells and machines is that we can keep pushing that. And again, you know, the sedentary curve of decline is very, very rapid. Whereas the, you know, if we're strength training, our health span and our lifespan end up matching up together and it goes out. And then we've got like two weeks where we usually get sick and we die and that's it. And I'm not excited about that, but it sounds a lot better than like a 30 year decline. And also again, uh, gosh, I was just listening to a humor lab podcast and they were talking about adequate strength training and a little bit of zone two cardio if you are genetically prone to uh, cognitive decline, and again, this is not even factoring in diet. So uh, diet wasn't remotely a factor in this, which I think can play a massive role in cognitive decline, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia and all that, but just simply being physically active, the most active people had uh, it forestalled the development, the beginning of uh, dementia type symptoms by more than 10 years, like it didn't even start to happen until 10 years later. And the rate of acceleration was much, much flatter. And again, that's just looking at exercise. So these may be exercisers who still eat, maybe not as good as what we would like, you know, if they were eating the way that you and I have recommended that folks eat then maybe we get a totally different thing out of that, but like, gosh, you're less likely to lose your marbles. You've got better quality of life. Your sex life is going to be better. Your outlook is better. And the cost is that you've just got to get going and habituate and do it and find something that you like. And again, like I love gardening. I love yoga. I think all those things are good, but man, a little bit of progressive overload that you can get out of a gym type setting. You just, you, you can't beat that. It's just magic for for what it can do for people. And this is, you know, it's pretty simple when people do physical therapy, even when they're at very low capacity, they're progressively overloading that stuff. It looks more like a, a bodybuilding gym session than it does a yoga session. Yeah.
0: I think that's such a good point and, and certainly one that people can really take a lot away from now. I want to be respectful of your time because I know that you have a super busy business, let listeners know how they can connect with you. You have an amazing podcast. I swear I keep telling myself I'm going to join one of your book your book talks that you do within your group. I just keep trying to find the time to make for it. How can people connect with you on social media? How can they connect with you and your podcast, which I highly recommend?
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So my wife and I do the Healthy Rebellion radio podcast. Uh, you can find all of that stuff at robwolf.com. I have social media accounts but I'm not on there. Like I have a Substack now where I post some stuff on the Substack. I just find the interaction to be a uh, much higher quality and the folks are are invested in that. I basically just redirect all of my social accounts back to the Substack because I was ready to burn down all of the social media, but that this was kind of my compromise, but but for now that's it. Like that's where folks can find me.
0: Wonderful. Well, obviously we'll have links to all your books and your podcast. And of course, element, which I highly recommend. And probably by the time this comes out, grapefruit will be sold out. But I would say my next favorite flavor is citrus. The orange salt is my favorite of all.
1: Yeah, me too. Orange is up there. Aside from grapefruit is just a whole other like order of magnitude better that I absolutely love. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic.